keep them strong. So we bless them now as they go to New York in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Cool, guys. Okay, let's go with, uh, this is part two. This is part two of last week's message. Last week's message was about threshold. And uh, this, is, uh, this one's titled Threshold Faith. Threshold Faith. And so we said last week that threshold is a space. Threshold is a space between one door closing between one door closing and another door opening and another opening. That's what we said last week. That threshold is a space between one door closing and another opening. And uh, we said that it's that moment when you step off the map and by faith you go into a land um, you don't know and you go without a plan. So you step off the map. And like Abraham did in Hebrews 11.8, you don't have a plan. And you don't know the land. That's what we said threshold was last time. And if you, to understand part two, it might be a good idea to Listen to part one if you haven't listened to part one. So uh, we're talking about how, and then we said that usually uh, this applies to discovering God or new things about God. We said it applies to phases in our lives. We said it applied to movements of God where God is moving you from one place in him to another. We said that uh, it applies to the permission he gives us here on earth to do things. It applies to the authority that he's bringing us into, and it applies to new assignments that he's giving us. So I'd suggest to you, for instance, that the guys from Ohio are on a threshold. They've come here, they've taken the risk, and now they're standing at the threshold or something, and uh, they, one door is closing behind them, another is opening. They're stepping off the map. Uh, they don't have a plan, and they don't know the land. And so this is a perfect Sunday to be here. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, in the process, uh, I- these are the things that um, thresholds apply to. One, discovering God. Finding out something new about God that you didn't know thus far. Because he is he's so deeply multifaceted that we keep discovering him our entire lives here on earth and then in heaven. Uh, it, taking us through different phases, movements that he's beginning on earth, permission to do things, authority and assignment. And uh, this is what we said last time. And we said that thresholds are triggered when one is dissatisfied. There is a degree of dissatisfaction that is required for thresholds to be triggered. If you're not dissatisfied with life, you can continue in it because you reach this place called a level of competency and you can stay there. Most Christians and most people in the world stay there. You come to a place either denominationally, individually, corporately, personally, in your marriage, in every area of your life, you reach a place of competency and you stay there because there's no dissatisfaction. It is when you're dissatisfied that you begin to look for something else. Every time you're dissatisfied with a restaurant, what do you do? You find another restaurant. Because, yeah. So, Dissatisfaction is one of the things that's required to trigger uh, a crossing of thresholds. Two, a readiness to have the familiar stripped off. A readiness to have 
the familiar stripped off. A readiness to have the familiar stripped away. If you stripped away. And if you don't have that, you, you may have dissatisfaction, but you won't be able to do anything with dissatisfaction. The moment I feel dissatisfied, now I have to be ready to strip off that which is familiar. Because whatever I'm stepping into, hey, I was just going to text you. Really, I was just telling me I'm going to text uh, Sam. Where are you, Sam? And there you appear. I should have text, thought of it earlier. <laughs> Hi, Dan. Yeah. Uh, so a readiness to have the familiar stripped away, that's important too. Because otherwise I can be dissatisfied and I can write songs about dissatisfaction. I don't need no satisfaction. <laughs> I don't think the boy likes Rolling Stones. Okay. Pardon? Hey, it's a song from your time uh, that I got the words... Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just that one line. It seemed to fit. <laughs> okay. So, uh, if, after dissatisfaction, there must be a readiness to strip away um, that which is familiar. The third one is there must be an obsession with change. There must be an obsession with change, with God change with God changes. There must be an obsession with it. Hey, this is so important, eh? Because if you don't have an obsession with God-provoked changes, there's no need to be dissatisfied. You won't even look to see if there's something new on the horizon. You'll still be using your iPhone 3. <laughs> really. Because there's no need. You, you don't even know that things have changed because you're not obsessed with change. A people that are not obsessed with God changes will not see the changes God is trying to bring. And like I said last time, if you have not made any major changes in your life over the last three or four years, if you're stuck in the same place doing the same things, doing them well but doing the same things, then something you should question the pace of your Christianity. Any questions? This is just uh, recapping what we said last time. Eh? The other thing was, uh, if you want to cross thresholds, uh, one of the triggers is the hazard of moving. The hazard of moving. As in, uh, be ready that things will change in life. This God is so not uh, theoretical. He doesn't just teach, 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 and then say, now that you've learned everything, move on. No. He now says, now that you've learned everything, let me test you on it. That's the problem with this God, eh? Anything he teaches you, he tests you on. Yeah. So he'll test you on it. Um, so if he says that, listen, change is coming. If he says, I'm taking you from one place to the other, then having known that, now get ready for an actual, actual movement, physically, spiritually, locationally, sometimes geographically, both the same words, uh, emotionally, expect change to happen. No, not necessarily geogra geographical. But uh, one of the things I've noticed is whenever there's a spiritual change, there's usually some physical relocation that happens. Almost always. Guys, 
when it came to Israel and God, land was so connected to change. And so every time they changed in an adverse way, they lost land. Every time they changed in a positive way, they gained land. What if you questioned your pace and found it wanting? Get in touch with someone who has a pace to their lives with God so that they can help you walk that route faster. Guys, I was asking some people this question yesterday. You're building a house and you find out that there are certain parts of the house that you're building that you don't know how to build. What do you do? Pray? No. You pray, yes. But then after that, you go and ask someone who's a contractor in that particular area, can you help me with this? Like, I don't even know how to unlock my iPad. I had to ask Brandon. No, I knew how to unlock it, like to make it stay unlocked. So I asked Brandon. I asked someone who knows. He's not a tech guy. He's like a... He's not a tech guy. And so... <laughs> and yet, even for... Yeah, he knows stuff. So even for little things, I, I would go and ask somebody. We need to begin to ask people who have expertise in the areas of life that we don't so that we benefit. And this church has enough experts. So in different areas. Anything you want to know about the Rolling Stones? You know who to ask. <laughs> Pardon? Who do you want to call? <laughs> I don't know, I'm full of these old songs today, man. This is not good. <laughs> Stay on track, yeah. Okay. I've already made a mistake um, today. I don't know whether to re-announce it on... Uh, I made an announcement about Bahrain that nobody in Bahrain knows. <laughs> <laughs> but now they know, and one of the leaders texted me saying, you should have waited, nobody knows. Cat's out of the back. Okay. <laughs> uh, and the last point I want to make with regard to the recap is divine thresholds are battlefields, eh? Divine thresholds are battlefields where God breaks through for you and moves you into a new place. Divine thresholds are battlefields where God breaks through for you and moves you into a new place. As in every time you cross a threshold, God does two things. One, he helps beat a Goliath in your life. Two, he brings you into a new territory. Always. Always. So the more we hesitate to cross thresholds, the longer it takes for God to then change a certain area in your life. Uh, be, uh, go and listen to last week's and you'll see that he invites us to cross thresholds every so often. And the more, the, the, the more you become aware of it, the greater the frequency of thresholds that you will cross. Because these invitations are constant, eh? God is constantly moving and he's saying, hey Jacob, wanna come? Wanna come? Wanna come? Invitations galore. Just con continuously. Any questions? Okay. So one of the things we really need for thresholds is faith. And that's why we're calling this uh, teaching Threshold Faith. Uh, so cross crossing Prashant suggested that I talk about this because he said you've talked about thresholds, but it requires faith. So can you revisit faith? So if this goes well, I did a good job. If it doesn't go well, it's his fault. So 
Cross, crossing thresholds is scary because um, we are submerged in reasoning. Crossing thresholds is scary because we are submerged in reasoning. We speculate what's going to happen. We have subjective experiences from the past that prevents us from daring to take a new step. Uh, God seemed to have failed us last time, so how is he going to do this time? Sometimes there's a sensory overload because we are so used to, depending on our five senses, that uh, uh, it just frightens you from crossing a threshold or crossing into a place where you don't have a plan and you don't know the land. There's peer pressure where people give you great advice telling you what happened to them when they made this foolish move like you are going to do. There are misplaced loyalties where you feel that if you do this, then you're going to break someone's heart or break someone's trust. And then there are conditioned responses where you always react to certain things a certain way and you're scared now to cross thresholds. These are some of the reasons why it's so difficult to step into new ground where there is no plan. And that, that, therefore, we stay with the old and keep doing the old really well. And people benefit. It's not that people don't benefit, but God is moving on. Always be where God is going to go, not where God was. Because one of the things with being where God was is you only hear the word he spoke before. You don't even, your ears get dull to the proceeding word. And your heart is only aware of the preceding word. Your ears get dull to the proceeding word. As in, you, you heard God here. And your, your ears are so tuned to that, that as he invites you, you don't want to go forth for all these really valid reasons. But what happens in the process is, Anything that God says here now, your ears are dull to it. You will not even hear it. Come on, man, we've got to break out of it. The word becomes something that doesn't go in because it, it might change me. And so I'm scared that it'll change me. And I deliberately begin to shut down. In every area of life, what is your, what is your area of struggle? Is it faith? Is it giving? Is it kindness? Is it... Um, um, vulnerability, what is it? In that area, it, because I have decided that I will live by what my father or grandfather or pastor taught me two years ago. Now what happens is whenever God speaks here, I'm unable to hear it because I've gotten dull. There's nothing like becoming dull to the word of God. And what's it called? A traditional mindset. What do you mean by a traditional mindset? Jesus said to the guys, hey, your traditions will void the word. The word in flesh is saying to people made by the spoken word that my words will be made void by your traditions. This is why I keep this thing of yours super fluid and open to learning. Your gray matter. Keep at it as you get older, eh? Any questions, guys? So what we need then is a Christ-like faith. One of the things Christ-like faith does, and what, I'm, what I mean by Christ-like faith is the faith that Christ says we should have and that he talks about in the Bible. Christ-like faith gives you a single eye, a single eye. You're able to see the narrow passageways that he cuts through rock. And all these things that we talked about suddenly become less important. I don't submerge myself in reasoning. I stop speculating on what-ifs. 
I don't go by my past experiences, which sometimes can scare me. I don't depend on my five senses, though they are very real, and I don't have sensory overload. I refuse to bow to peer pressure. I have loyalties, but they will not rule over the one allegiance that must trump every other loyalty. And finally, the conditioned responses that I have, I plead with the Holy Spirit to change those responses so I'm not like one of Pavlov's dogs. And that is how you begin to work towards this place where now you have single sight. And it's possible. So what if you take eight months to overcome it, two years to overcome it? Start today. I'm not looking for a miracle. I'm looking for a change. Those words are important, what I just said. I'm not looking for a miracle. I'm looking for a change. A miracle is great. God provides it. But a change is something where God and I work together. And it is forever. I will, when I change, I don't need miracles. When I don't change, I need miracles. I got no problems with miracles. I'd prefer everything miraculously. But that's not the way God works. His favorite word, and the one thing he is not, is change. The unchanging one loves the word change. So, to redefine faith from ages ago, faith is entering into what God is doing uh, with you or God wants to do with you. Faith is entering into what God wants to do with you. Faith is entering into what God wants to do with you, what God wants to do for you. It's embracing, it's embracing his action. It's saying, ah, so you want to do this with me, all right? So I'm going to enter into what you are doing I know that you want to do it with me, you want to do it for me, and that others will benefit. Great, Father. I'm going to step into this. Faith is no great um, exploit on my part. It is, Ashak, so this is what you want to do, Father. You want to do it with me. I want to partner with you. That's how this works. It becomes much easier then. He's the one who's carrying the load, and I don't have to hold on for dear faith. No, I'm just embracing his risky action. He just happens to want to do it with me. That's what faith looks like. So, renting a space in New York, it's just stupid. It is super expensive. But, if that is what he wants to do, then embrace his risky action. And then ask, Diana to pay for it. No. So, so you, you take it, and then after you take it, you expect God to uh, do what he wants to do, because you're embracing what he wants to do. You enter into what he wants to do. Faith is not a means to an end. It's, it is the end. Faith is not a means to an end. It is the end. And what do you mean it is the end? The end is... Can you be a God-recognizer, as in can you recognize God and what he wants to do with you? Can you partner with God? Can you be a God-partner? And then can you be a God-pleaser? I love this. 
this is, this is when faith becomes so much more than, I gotta hang on, I gotta hang on, I hope he gets me through. The, the intent is, can I recognize what God is up to? This then makes faith like a, a childlike adventure. Can I, can I find out what God is up to? Can I recognize God in what he's doing? Gotcha. And now it is, okay, now that I know what you're doing, can I partner with you, oh God? Because you're inviting me into this. You're saying, I want to do this with you. Can I partner with you? I'm scared, but I'll hold your hand. I remember when I was flying from Luton to Zurich once, and uh, my niece was sitting with me, and she insisted that she'd be the one who would sit with me. And then... I didn't know that she was scared of planes taking off. And suddenly, as the plane begins to taxi and take off, she grabs my hand. And once she grabbed my hand, she knew everything would be okay. I didn't know why she was doing it. I was feeling like, why are you grabbing my hand kind of a thing? Because I'm not used to girls grabbing my hand, even though she was only five years old. But she grabbed my hand and is holding on to it tightly. And I thought to myself, that's all it takes, eh? Here was someone who wanted to share an adventure with her favorite uncle. She only has one. And, <laughs> and, then, uh, and then at that moment, she begins to grab my hand and hold on to it, and that makes everything okay for her. This is the idea of how we embrace God in this and become partners with him. You're scared, but you're partnering with him. And then finally, the third part is so cool because without faith, it is impossible to please him. And so I end up being a God pleaser, a God recognizer, a God partner, a God pleaser. If you think of faith in these components, it'll be much easier to walk with him. Any questions? Any questions, guys? I said this long ago, but maybe it's worth saying again. Um, there are faith degraders at work. Whenever we want to cross a threshold, there are faith degraders, as in things that hollow out faith. And I uh, just want you to be aware of it. So um, these prevent us from crossing thresholds. So there's doubt. Doubt is the opposite of faith. And the only way you can go from doubt to faith is through the word, eh? There's no other way around it. Don't try to make doubt as a feeling go away. Feelings will come back. The only way you move from doubt to faith is through the word. The only way you move from feelings to faith is through the truth. The only way you move from doubt to faith, when you have doubts about doing what you think God is saying, go back to the word you wrote down, where he spoke to you, or go back to the word of God, where it's very clear, it's the only way to go from doubt to faith. If you have feelings that are scared, the only way to go from feelings to faith is through voicing the truth. Voicing the truth. Then there is self-reliance. Self-reliance, which is the substitute of faith. This is a big one eh, for all of us. Self-reliance, which is the substitute of faith, as in uh, whenever we realize that faith is going to be difficult, where we'll have to trust and wait on God to do things, we go into self-reliance mode because we can handle it better and we can do it at the right time. With God, his timing is really bad. <laughs> and he has hundreds of opportunities to do it earlier, but he will not. And he'll wait till all other means are exhausted and then he steps in. So it's much easier to go into self-reliance because you can get things done. 
So uh, low, uh, this uh, low expectancy, low expectancy. This is one of Christian's favorite ones too. Low expectancy is the detractor of faith. Detractor of faith. As in, if I can lower my expectations, it's okay. If God doesn't come through, I won't be disappointed. And if I lower my expectations, I don't need to exert my faith. So why not just go low? Like, don't expect really God to turn up and do something godish. Just go low. And that way, you're not disappointed. Everything will be fine. If it doesn't work out, kesara sera. So just be careful of that. Eh? Low expectancy is a detractor of faith. Always, uh, we'll talk about it later, how to, how to have really high expectations of God and um, to go with the expectations that He sets for you. God really wants to put on the writs for us. He wants to roll up His sleeves and show His mighty right arm. But sometimes He says, there's no point rolling up my sleeve because you're asking for my wrist. And so the lower the expectations, the e- always have high expectations, guys. Ask for the moon when he asks you to ask for the moon. Next one. Ignorance is the failure of faith. Ignorance is the failure of faith. It's not bliss. Ignorance is the failure of faith. As in, if I'm ignorant of his word, I'm ignorant of his promise, I'm ignorant of his will, then we think God will do whatever he wants and we just have to roll the dice, divine dice, and see what numbers come up. Uh, that is such a... Uh, that's a bunch of... Uh, so it, it's really bad. So ignorance is a failure of faith. Fear is a tormentor of faith. Fear is a tormentor of faith. Fear is a tormentor of faith. When it comes to torment... Saying, remember what happened last time? It's going to happen again. Remember what happened to your mom? It's going to happen again. Remember what happened to... It just is so tormenting. It's a spirit. When fear attacks, remember it's a spirit. Don't go just with your feelings and your thoughts. A spirit. Rebuke the spirit and do not inhabit those thoughts. Rebuke the spirit. Refuse to inhabit those thoughts. Those thoughts can come and go, but refuse to inhabit them because like I always say, you always inhabit what you think. You always inhabit what you think. Fear is something that I must nip in the bud because the longer I let it stay, the more I begin to inhabit it. And the last one is compromise. Compromise is the hybrid or the mutation of faith. Hybrid or mutation of faith where when I mix a little bit of faith with a little bit of my own... um, works, uh, I mutate faith. The results are not fully God. They have, a, they have a slight smell of Yahweh, but they also smell of your sweat. Yeah, The aroma is not pure Yahweh. It's this mixture of um, your sweat and God, and it doesn't smell good. Hybrid or mutation? Which one, Jeremy? Pardon? You got it. Any questions, guys? Yeah, so every time I'm ignorant of the word or ignorant of a promise or ignorant of what God's will is, uh, faith fails because uh, it has to be based on what I hear God saying. So 
results in failure of faith. Yeah. So guys, to cross thresholds and gain initial momentum, because that's one of the things God does, eh? When you, when, whenever you cross a threshold, God also wants to give you momentum so that it doesn't matter whether it's uphill or downhill, you have so much momentum. And it is critical that I have momentum when I start things. I don't need to have a plan. We think plans give us momentum. No, plans give us a fixed direction. We think knowledge of the land gives us momentum. Knowledge of the land tells us where not to step. But momentum comes from God, where it's the wind of the Spirit that carries you initially, and it has such a thrust to it. And the intent of God's momentum is not to make you great, but to completely annihilate the enemy. That is what momentum does. Spirit-provoked momentum destroys obstacles to divine plans. That is why you need to have it. And it is not around you, it is in you. The momentum has to build in you where you know that you have crossed the threshold now. And in you, it doesn't matter what people say, you know that Jericho will fall. You are convinced about it. Seven days have gone by, you, the rest of them are scared that nothing's going to happen. But you are so blooming sure, because there's momentum inside you that says, this will happen. That's the kind of momentum I'm talking about. It's not external. And God always packs it this way. When he says, hey, Emily, cross the threshold, he gives her the momentum so that as she crosses the threshold, even though there's nothing that is reassuring, she's absolutely confident that it'll happen. Any questions? So we talked about thresholds last time. I said, find out the thresholds that you're going to cross. And now, now that you've written it down, and I'm assuming you wrote it down last time, uh, for those that were here, now gauge the direction God is heading. Gauge the direction God is heading. Gauge the, gauge the direction God is heading. Oi! Gauge the direction God is heading. You know, one of the words that Paul used to use often, and I love the way he used to say it, he would say, I perceive. He wouldn't know for sure. In Acts 27.10, he's saying to the captain and the ship, I perceive that this ship will end in a shipwreck. I perceive. He's, not, he's got no visible evidence to provide them, but somehow inside him he knows. I perceive. It's this idea of gauging the direction God is heading. And you can't give anybody any kind of um, evidence for it, but you know what is going to happen. And so with the thresholds that you wrote down last week or you will write down today, begin to gauge, okay, so where are you heading, oh God? Do you really want space in New York? Do you realize how expensive it's going to be? And then you gauge it, and then you begin to walk. This allows you to adjust, because otherwise you hear a word that was given to you four years ago about New York, and you think to yourself, well, four years ago this is what you said. But then you realize there's more, there's more, there's more. God always unfolds. One of the things he loves is immediate obedience. We love outcomes. He loves obedience. Immediate obedience is so difficult without assured outcomes. Give me an outcome, guarantee the outcome, I'll obey. Nah! Give me obedience and we'll see what happens. 
And it could well be, Jacob, that you obey and nothing happens on this side of the earth and you find out after you get to heaven, 40 years after you get to heaven, you find that what I told you has come to pass through some other guy who doesn't even give you credit for it. I love that he demands that. I love this God partly because he demands such ridiculous things from you. And he has the right to do it because he was demanded. He, he, God demanded it of him and he did it. And now he says, you want to be my disciple? Be like me. Nothing he asks of me is something he hasn't done already. And now he says, okay, give me, give me obedience. This is the kind of stuff we are talking about, guys. This kind of stuff changes the world. This kind of stuff changes the world through ordinary people like you. Nick is very ordinary. You are, right? Okay, just checking. Gauge the direction God is heading, man. And you gauge it through the nature of his dealings. You gauge it through the nature of his dealings. Uh, you kind of begin to figure out, ah, I kind of know where you're going with this, Father. Like the Syrophoenician woman knew it. She was not a Jew. She was, she was almost a Canaanite. And she knows that Jesus has begun to minister to outsiders and Gentiles. So perhaps if I go and ask him to heal my daughter, even though he's a Jew, he will oblige. How does she know it, man? Peter didn't know it. After Jesus rose from the dead, he's still waiting for a white sheet full of creepy crawlies to convince him that he should go to the Gentiles. And this woman who is a Syrophoenician, Gentile woman, knows that Jesus has already begun to go out of the narrow Jewish paths. And she dares to have this dialogue with him. That is so amazing. Where it's retort for retort. She almost sounded like me. And so, sorry, me. <laughs> and she gets what she wants. This is what I mean by through the nature of his dealings. Be, be, be so aware of him. Guys, be aware of him and let him speak to you as, a, as man speaks to man. Like he did with Moses. If you go down this, and he can do it through different words. He can, he can do it through the word. He can do it through a rhema word. He can do it through signs. He can do it through... Spiritual sight, you can do it through conversations you're having with him. There are different ways. I'm not even going to go down that route. Rhema, uh, spelled wrong. Yeah. That's a Latin spelling of a Greek word. Yeah. And guys, if we go this way, you'll find that you are very focused with regard to crossing a threshold. You find that you're very foolish, and therefore it allows you to cross the threshold. You find that you're very sure-footed, and so it doesn't matter how difficult the threshold is, you are sure-footed, and you find that you're very conclusive with what God wants to do, as in you conclude whatever he wants you to do. These are four important things about crossing a threshold. If I know that this is a threshold that, Father, you're inviting me to cross, I must become so focused, and what I mean by focus is just this. Even though the fig tree does not blossom, sight is nothing. As in, what I see doesn't matter. Sight is nothing. There's that ad, right? Thirst is nothing. What's it for? Oh, I thought it was something a little better. 
Okay, T thirst is nothing. It's this, uh, sorry, not thirst is nothing. Sight is nothing. Focus means that I'm so focused on what you have said, oh God, that what I see does not any longer have any bearing on what I do, what I think, how I walk, and where I go. No bearing. Sight is nothing. And I'm saying to you that this is our biggest problem because when we see stuff, we want to control it. Once you don't consider what you see, you will find yourself loosening your control over things. Control is a result of seeing things that are not aligning and desperately wanting to make them align. Oh boy, are we controlling. Sight is nothing. So that's the first one, focus. Second, foolish. You will go without armor with five stones against a guy who's fully armored, has an armor bearer, and is about six feet taller than you. You'll go up against him. You're very foolish. Everybody around you will advise you otherwise. Saul will give you his armor. You won't wear it. You're completely foolish. Your pastor will begin to panic. Because he initially asked you to do it, and now that you're doing it, he's scared that you'll lose your life. Happened with you, Xavier, this week. I told Xavier to do something. He went and did it, and then things weren't working, and I panicked and said, forget all that I said. And thank God he didn't, because it worked out. But, but being foolish is just going into situations without any plan B. That's one of the definitions of foolishness. No plan B. What a God, eh? This is why it's so hard to follow him and so fun to follow him. Third, he gives you the sure-footedness of a mountain goat where you thrill at steep mountain passes. You have the hind feet of a mountain goat talks about it in Psalm 18, verse 33. I think there it's a deer. But when you drive to Banff, you see these mountain goats on, these, uh, on those mountains. And they're, not, they're standing, half of them is standing on air. And then the rest of them is standing on uh, a rock that's supposed to hold them up. I don't know how. The sure-footedness, where um, even though the path is very narrow, God seems to just tell you where to place your foot. And you walk quite unafraid. I, I'd rather be unafraid than use faith to overcome fear. I'd love to be in a place where I'm unafraid. I hate it that I'm afraid and then I have to use faith to overcome the fear. What if I was unafraid? Daniel was unafraid. I want to be unafraid. Smell of fear is so lousy, eh? I hate the smell of fear. Whenever I'm afraid, I can smell it. And you've got to panic, and then you've got to cry out for help, and then you, your prayers are so panicky. You're hoping God will intervene. You've got no connection with God while there is fear, because faith only grows in the soil of peace and takes forever to get to that place. And then conclusive, as in uh, whatever, you're, you're God's closer. You're not closer to God, you're God's closer, as in he sends you to close things out. 
I love what um, Paul says about Titus. Hey, Titus, I want you to go and set things in order. I want you to conclude what I've started. God loves guys who he can send to close things off. He, he has a lot of starters, eh? God has tons of starters, very few finishers. God will love a closer. Thresholds, if we have these four things, it's very, it's, it, it, thresholds become easy to cross and the new territory becomes easy to sustain. And for me, this is very important right now. And uh, for the guys from Dayton and for the rest of us, this is important. If we can get this right, I can walk well, unafraid. Any questions, guys? One of the ways Satan tries to draw you away from thresholds is to uh, busy you with other things. So he'll busy you with... How do I make this square disappear? Oh, there's no square there. What just happened to my page? Brandon. Okay. Okay, it ain't working. Brandon, can you fix it, please? Yeah, the enemy seeks to draw me away from thresholds by using busyness, circumstances, work, ministry, worry, fear, fretting. So remember, every time you're going to cross a threshold, you'll be inundated with work, with striving, with ministry, with busyness, uh, with other less important things, less important things. Because when you're at the brink of a threshold, there is nothing else that is more important than the threshold, especially if it is a God-presented threshold. Heidi is at a threshold. That's a, that's a word that she needs to hear. Heidi is at a threshold. At this threshold, she must make the threshold the most important thing in her life. So one of the things the enemy does is when I'm at a threshold, he'll try to confuse me with a whole lot of other things so that I'll delay crossing because there are so many other things to attend and so many other things to do and so many other things to take care of. And so in the process, you don't cross the threshold. It delays you from crossing the threshold. Remember, guys, all warfare is relational. All warfare is relational. It is when I stand in Christ that I defeat the enemy. Therefore, warfare that is not fought from a place of intimacy with God is a lot of struggle, unnecessary wounds, prolonged battles. But if warfare is relational, then it is standing in Christ that allows me to beat the enemy quickly. Warfare is always relational. Hey. Thanks, Brandon. You you resist Satan by standing in the presence of God. You resist Satan by standing in the presence of God. And therefore, um, it is much easier to win battles standing in the presence of God. And therefore, it is relational. And when I when I try fighting Sheldon without standing next to Mike, Sheldon may beat me. Once I'm standing next to Mike, now Sheldon is scared of Mike and therefore he's already afraid. 
Let's begin to conclude. Guys, if you want to live by faith, then you must live with the daily question. Thanks, man. Okay, just stay here. Let me try. If, great. If you want to live by faith, you must. I pray God that nobody in this church right now will back off from this. If you want to live by faith, you must. You must do what? You must live with the daily question. You must live with the daily question. Daily question. You must live with the daily question. What do you or God want me to do for you today? Every day. You must live with this question. Every day. What, oh God, do you want me to do for you today? Don't back off. If you don't hear him today, ask the same question again. Yours is to live by faith. One who chooses to live by faith must live by this daily question. What do you, oh God, want me to do for you today? And at some point when he realizes that you're being persistent or that you're being sincere, that you really want in, that you want to engage and participate with what he's doing here on earth, then he begins to say things to you. And you begin to now action it. And as you begin to action it, every day becomes an adventure. I'm scared of people who say that, ah, we must get to used to routine life in God. Hey, when there is routine, don't get used to it, but get used to a supernatural God. I just don't understand this routine God. There's nothing routine about him. Nothing routine about him. Yes, so I'll wash my dishes. Yes, I'll clean my house. But that's not a routine God. While I'm washing dishes and cleaning my house is when God begins to tell you what life is about. So even the washing dishes, which I hate, becomes something that becomes slightly interesting. Where now you begin to have this question daily, and it must be a daily question. Guys, I'm telling you something. This is something I do every day. Until you do it every day, you will not get a chance to experiment with it. Till you experiment with it, you will never find out who he is. Till you find out who he is, you will never know the adventure of God. But if this became your daily habit, then you'll find that you're stepping into adventures and the largeness of your God is growing. And the largeness of your God, whenever it grows, affects a whole lot of people around you. And you begin to experience him and you begin to show him off. Yeah. Yeah, when God tells you something, you have to begin experimenting with it. As in, is this really you or God? Do you want to tell me a little more about it? Okay, I'm going to take a step and wet my toes. Ooh, that was cold, Father. You still think this is a good idea. And so you begin experimenting with it. And as you do, God just helps you with the process, man. That's different than testing. You know what he said is true. You're just feeling it out. I just found out that my car goes so high that I can't get into it now. Like, uh, the car has a button where the car just rises up. And I've never, I didn't know it rises up that much. And then, uh, today when I tried climbing into my car, I thought I'd need a ladder. Because it was like, like this. 
So you experiment, and as you experiment, you find that in the adventure God has given you, there are so many components that you haven't discovered yet. So if you see me going down Broadway with my car going like this and loud rap, you know it's me. Yeah? Yeah. So please ask this question. It's, um, it's a way into... Thresholds are dead when I have a spiritual grasp of God's expectations. Thresholds are only dead. Thresholds are dead when I have a grasp of God's expectations. And the strange thing about these expectations is they'll be unclear, but they'll be unshakable. These two words never go together, except when God uses them. So... (laughs) Thresholds are dead when I have a grasp of God's expectations. And his expectations are so huge and they're so unclear, but they're so unshakable that you begin to take the first step. And as you begin to take the first step, things begin to clear. But please don't expect him to tell you everything. It never works. You don't need faith then. But this is the way it works. I hope this is encouraging you. Because at present you don't look terribly encouraged. But I'm sure your heart is, and it takes a while before it shows on your face, but I'm used to that. Yeah, you do, but go ahead. No, when I take one step, I now have greater confidence that the one step I took is great, so I can take a second step. It is my confidence that increases. It, it, it doesn't matter anymore. That is the beauty of it. Guys, with, when it comes to faith, it's not the clarity that matters. It is the confidence that you build up. You begin to trust this God blind. They say faith is not blind. It's partly true. You have to hear what he's saying before you can step into it. But you don't care much for clarity now. You don't want a clear picture because you have a very unshakable God. Which child wants a clear picture? You're saying to the child, I'm taking you to this in Florida, really, I'd like to know about Florida and how many PCR tests you might have to do and what we have. Child doesn't ask nothing, man. The child knows you're going to Florida. Child grabs your arm and that's it. He does not or she does not want a clear picture. They just want an unshakable dad. Clarity is highly overrated. Perish the thought. You want to see how your house church is going to work in Dayton? Ain't going to happen. David started like this. David was at Adullam, and there are people gathering around him, and they ask him, so what is your plan? And he says, I have no plan. And then he's so uh, unsure of things that he takes his parents and drops them off at the palace of a pagan king and says, I don't know what I'm doing. Can you keep them till I figure it out, and then I'll come back? And 400 riffraff gather around him and say, okay, we'll join you. And that is how David begins. Ah, let's conclude. See, 
so, so guys, uh, to, to grasp God's expectation, um, begin to hear what God says he will do. Then name the journey. Recognize the impossibility of it and dare to trust him. I'll just write that down. See what he's saying. Name the journey. Recognize its impossibility. And then dare to trust. So, give us a practical example, Jacob. See that he's saying go to NY. Name it. Call it the beginning of what God is going to do in the USA through us. Recognize its impossibility. Small church. High rent. No money. Sheldon for company. <laughs> Nothing is working out right now. Recognize its impossibility and then dare to trust. Anything. I'm just pulling out an example because it's fresh. And I'm kind of, yeah, I'm kind of excited about it. What do you mean see? Guys, if we tune our heart to God, and I believe that anybody in this room can do that, and you know what it is to tune your heart, heart with God. If you tune your heart with God, you will see in the stars the birth of a nation, like Abraham did. You will see in the jawbone of a of a donkey, a weapon that can destroy the Philistines. You will see in uh, two bread, two loaves of fish and bread, two loaves of bread and fish, what can feed a multitude. You will begin to see things through these little signs that God gives you. You will see an entire nation being saved by just standing out and looking at them. It's odd how God does this. He takes you out and asks you to look at the stars, shows you the stars and says, hey, what do you see? See tons of stars. want you to know that your descendants will be more than that. Seeing is catching these glimpses that God gives you of what he's up to, and he litters thousands of them. My dad and mom used to do this for Christmas. We would never get a Christmas gift till we solved clues. And they'd leave these clues all over the place and we'd have to go, Reba and I'd go hunt these clues and there'd be about six clues. At the end of the sixth clue, we would know where the Christmas gift is hidden. And it's like this, God drops so many clues all around the place. He is a father who really loves doing this with his children. He, there's nothing academic or clinical about him. Everything is relational, everything is suited to your personality. One of the things we need to understand is the personality of God. And the strange thing is the personality of God will always match the personality he's made you. Think of that for a second. Every personality, every part of your person, every part of every personality on earth that is brilliant and flawless came from him. Because he made us in his image. And now he says, Jacob, I know you know my character, I know you know my nature, but can you begin to discover my personality towards you too? Aren't there things, Jacob, that you and I do that I don't do with anybody else because I've made you a certain way? And when I do it, you immediately know it's me. I mean, Phoebe does this to me and I'll do anything for her. She calls me KK. Nobody calls me KK. The point being, guys, 
there's, there's this part of God's personality that is so connected to you that when you begin to figure that out, you will find clues that he leaves almost like an, an indulgent father trying to get your attention to say, hey, I left that there, did you see that? Hey, I left that there, did you see that? Why? Because he's saying, let me play this game with you. I can do it without you, but I want you there. Man, this becomes so much fun then. It takes the fear out of it and it becomes a game. This doesn't apply to just thresholds. It applies to everything, guys. Everything. Any questions? If I'm not making myself clear, let me know. We don't think of God like this, but he's a father at the end of the day. And father's personalities with three different children are very different. Even the way he scolds them is different. The way he disciplines them is different. The way he uh, uh, reacts after this disciplining them is different. Everything is different. And we are talking about really bad fathers that we had. As in, compared to God. So what about good fathers? What about the good, good father? Very different man. Selah, yep. Yeah, I, I don't think we should divide anything in our lives into spiritual and non-spiritual. Everything is continuous. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Guys, remember, um, it's important to hear the word for faith, eh? Reading the word ain't enough. Really, Jacob? You're being unscriptural. Nope. Faith comes by? Hearing the word. Ah, so you mean play the Bible on audio? Nope. It is this. Hearing the word. This. If I choose not to hear the word, I will not be able to walk in faith. We've, we've, we've arrived at a conclusion that we need to read the word and faith will increase. Not the complete picture. It is hearing the word. And hearing the word requires that you hear when it is being spoken, taught, and one that avoids the spoken word or the taught word will not increase in faith. You'll be surprised at how carefully I hear what I'm teaching. Because my faith has to grow too. And then you will be surprised at how carefully I hear someone else who's teaching. Odd, eh? Why does hearing increase, increase faith? Because it is in the word, it is through the word that the Spirit of God reveals Christ. How Christ is revealed, you're able to know his magnificence, his amazing ways, and you begin to trust him more. And therefore your faith increases. But it's surprising how it's not reading the word, it's hearing the word. Last two sentences and we're done. The Holy Spirit is your advantage in this whole process. You know, um, sometimes in homes you see 
children coming to the um, dad and asking him for something. And the dad, uh, the mom doesn't want to give it, but she's kind of okay with it. So the mom says, no, I won't give it to you. And the dad takes out a cookie and slips it to the child. And the mom pretends she's not looking. It's literally like that sometimes in heaven with the father saying, okay, you want something? Come and ask for it. And then he'll pretend that he's uh, uh, being very godish while the Holy Spirit says, don't worry, I'll get it for you. And he grabs his cookie and gives it to you. And the father knows fully well what is happening. But we don't realize how the Holy Spirit is our advantage in heaven, how he conspires with us to bring to pass what God actually wants. You end up, end up eating chocolate-covered broccoli in the end. Yeah, I know. But that's how you get healthy food in. And so, uh, so, so all I'm trying to say is this, guys, because uh, this example just doesn't uh, cut it as much. But what I'm trying to say is um, there's a scripture in the Bible which says um, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of kings to search it out. You are supposed to search it out and God is supposed to conceal it. But we have someone on the inside and he is the Holy Spirit. So when God conceals a matter and you go searching for it, the Holy Spirit says, don't worry, I'll play on your team for this one. And he begins to show you what God actually wants to give you, but God wants you to persist and push. And as you do, the Holy Spirit begins to show you what he wants to do. And he begins to conspire with you. Very often I'll have these conversations with the Holy Spirit saying, so Spirit of God, what do you think I should do? This is what the Father has said. Tell me, tell me. Last sentence. Thresholds when crossed give you a panoramic glimpse of majesty. Thresholds when crossed give you a panoramic glimpse of majesty. You cannot imagine what Moses felt when he stood on the other side, stretched out his staff, and the waters came back. And for the first time in 400 years, Pharaoh and his horses were no longer pursuing Egyptians. There were no whips. And he's standing on this little mound. Unfortunately, every time I talk about this, I think of Charlton Heston. And so... He stretches out his staff, the waters come crashing down, and the Egypt, Egypt is completely undone. And Moses realizes now that there is a majesty that I've never witnessed before. That then fuels him to go up Mount Sinai. On Mount Sinai, he finishes seeing God's glory for 40 days. There is something about crossing thresholds that gives you such a majest such a glimpse of majesty, a panoramic glimpse of majesty that'll change you forever and dare you to step further and further and further and further. You cannot do this unless you see it. Glory is a great motivator. And by glory, all I mean is the splendor, the magnificence, the weight, the power, the laughter, the goodness of God. Every time you see it, you think to yourself, I can do greater. Guys, know this. Ah, shucks, man. This is so critical. There are so many times in life where we will not take the next step because we think it's more expensive, uh, a, a, a little too reckless, a, 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 a little too extravagant, a, a little too this, a little too that. We don't take it and you don't realize that God is trying to say, hey, Jacob, you're a 99-cent burger guy. 
I'm trying to get you to a KFC Toonie Tuesday level so that you can go to a, a McDonald's $5 level, so that you can go to a White Spot $19 level, so that you can go to a Jet Set Burger at Fairmont at a $40 level. And Father, can we please stop there? But the point is, so often we will not scale in the physical and we think we can scale spiritually, but I'm saying this to you. First the physical, then the spiritual. This is so important. First the physical, then the spiritual. First Corinthians 15. God first says, hey, you think you can handle spiritual things, Jacob? Let's see if you can handle simple, physical, mammon-oriented things. And if you can't do that, how are you going to deal with spiritual things? One of the reasons... Acts 29 is where it is, where it is financially is because of Heidi's lack of fear when it comes to mammon. Unfortunately, as a pastor, when she makes decisions, I have to pretend that I have faith. But thank God we kept scaling up, kept scaling up. To have a bean counter as your treasurer is the most dangerous thing in a church. There are two people you have to be really scared of in a church, the church secretary and the church treasurer. You get right people there, you'll be happy. The church will grow. That's on the side. Please understand this last principle I made. It is critical because we have a problem in this church when it comes to that. Physically, we do not scale. I'm not talking about this way. I'm talking about other forms of physical scaling. Physically, we do not scale, and we think that spiritually we can scale, and I'm saying to you it's not possible. Challenge me on it. Ask me questions. I'm done. No, amping up, amping up your life. Not giving nothing spiritual in this. This is down to earth, nitty gritty, world living. Amping up physical life, as in, Father, this is where I've lived all my life, and you're inviting me to live life this way, but I won't because this is where I am. And then when he tries to do it spiritually, it's as useless because spiritual things are invisible, at least physical is visible. And if you can't do it physically, you will not do it spiritually. Yeah. So he, he can still send you with nothing. You, you can be sent to New York tomorrow with nothing. But you know this God and the extent of what he can do because you've seen it in the physical. We think that when God gives us something humongously spiritual to do that we will be able to do it. But you haven't, if you haven't experienced it in your own personal life at a physical level, you will not be able to scale to where he wants you to go. From Joseph, starting in Jacob's house, going to Potiphar's palace, going to the prison, going to Pharaoh. From Moses, starting in um, um, uh, the uh, um, house of the Pharaoh, then going down to 
the backside of Sinai, then coming back and then going up Mount Sinai, which was the ultimate place. Pharaoh's place was nothing compared to Mount Sinai. Jesus, who left his glory in heaven, knew how to walk here on earth as a poor man, as a carpenter, and yet had the ability to stand on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, who began to realize ways as he walked with Jesus, that there is more to me than being a fisherman. Paul, who was an ultimate scholar, a Benjaminite, who knew what it was to be completely impoverished and completely content. Jacob, who knew what it was to be absolutely debt-ridden, broken, and how God can deliver and God can bring to pass impossible things, financially, physically, spiritually. We don't realize how important it is to physically get used to God doing things, but we think we can scale spiritually, and I'm saying it's not possible. Yeah, yeah, that was the right word. We have a poverty mindset, guys. We have a poverty mindset. Oh, I, that's what I'll teach next week. We have a poverty mindset. A poverty mindset will not give up what is in my hand till May gives me something better. A poverty mindset is completely transactional. A poverty mindset is an orphan mindset. I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, 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 no, I don't need to say that. Um, yeah, go ahead, Diana. No, I, I didn't say improving my life. I'm going to argue with you on this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So something that's been really bothering is me is my job. It's a good job. It's pretty comfortable. I like the people. I like what I'm doing. Um, but I've been feeling God tugging at me. It's time to move on. So I keep asking him, what's next? I, I look for things like, should I go back to school for that? It's no, no, no. And last week I heard, you need to quit first. Um, I'm very sorry. <laughs> I put you in this. not ready for that. Um, it's not tied to my well-being. It's not about money. It's not about security or anything. But I think it's a symbolism of, it's more spiritual. It's about trusting him, what's next for my life, where he's taking me um, as in sending me and everything. So it's more tied to that than my physical well-being. But it's a physical step. Yeah. I'm not talking about getting richer, guys. I'm not talking about... I don't think so. It may have sounded that way to you, but that is not what it sounded like to everybody. So it would have to be specific to you. But I, I have to argue on this because that is not uh, what I'm trying to convey. It's not getting a, yeah, it's not getting a red car that goes up and down. <laughs> but, but if that happens, so be it. But the point is this, that at the end of the day, um, an impoverished mindset prevents me from scaling physically. And an impoverished mindset will shut down doors for me spiritually because I will not be able to step there. And we'll talk about it next week, but it is so critical to our existence, guys. Unfortunately, the world has gotten this part better. Joan's dad was not like this. When I met him, I had an impoverished mindset. Uh, her dad was not like this. Uh, he was old, eh? 
Like, what I meant is, when I met him, he was old. Yeah. Yeah. Older, older, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. But I've met some people that don't have an impoverished mindset. A man, when you meet them, you wish you can be like them, but you've never practiced it, so you never step into it. This is a completely separate topic, but so what? All righty. What time is it? I don't want to look at my watch because I'm scared. Okay, we're doing okay. 12.55. Oh, that is so important. In the next five minutes, we have to accomplish a lot. So, uh, if the guys from Dayton want to come up, we just want to pray for you. The two that are dressed properly and the guy with the shorts, if you would just want to come up. And if you want to put 